It's in pace here through Chronicles. Last week we did three different kings. We talked about each one of them in their walk with the Lord and how their heart related to the Lord. So the king tonight that we're going to stop and talk about in 2 Chronicles 28 is King Ahaz. Now I'd like to tell you that we're spending a whole week on King Ahaz because he was a great king. Uh, He wasn't. The king is so bad that's forcing us to do communion tonight. Because after reading the chapter, I just felt dirty. So we need to just do communion here at the end to really stop and say, Lord, what can we learn from this? Remember what we talked about so often in Corinthians? We can learn from them. We learn the good that they do, but we also can learn from the bad that they do. And King Ahaz tonight, if you're making a list of the different kings, he ranks pretty near the bottom. Now, the king that follows him, Hezekiah, we spend four chapters on Hezekiah, and he's a really good king. But here, for King Ahaz tonight, this is not one that we can learn a lot of good from in any way whatsoever. Now, if Dustin, if you don't mind putting that slide up here, just some quick reminders of some of the stuff that we've been going through. Just to remind you of the different kings, this is the first group that we went through, starting with Saul. We all know about Saul. We all know about David, Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom split, if you remember correctly, to the northern tribes and the southern tribes. We're following the southern tribes, the kingdom of Judah. That's what the book of Chronicles goes through. So we have Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa. That's about 140 years right there. And the next slide, Dustin. These are the ones that we've been going through lately here, starting with Jehoshaphat. And then last week we did Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham. That's about another 140 years. So basically, since now, when we get into King Ahaz here tonight, it's been pushing close to 300 years. 300 years of kingdoms that we've been studying and going through. Now, once again, King Ahaz, there's not a lot of good to say about him. So what did this guy do? Well, let's look at this. Second Chronicles 28, verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. So right there's our verse. What did he do that was not right? Three examples. First one, verse 19, same chapter, please. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. So he encouraged moral decline. Encouraged moral decline. Keep that in the back of your mind. What else did he do wrong? Verse 22. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. So his first thing, encouraged moral decline. We'll talk about that in detail. Second thing, he was unfaithful to the Lord. And verse 23 basically sums it up. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. Damascus would be the northern kingdom, the false gods of Israel, which he had defeated them, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they might help me. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. What happened was Israel... Israel and Syria got together to come to defeat Ahaz. So what Ahaz is saying is, obviously, their God is more powerful than my God. So therefore, I'm going to go ahead and serve those gods. So that's what Ahaz did. Moral decline, unfaithful, and he started worshiping false gods. Now, to go into a little bit more detail, verse 2, chapter 28. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So what this guy did is just set up false worship all over. There's going to be a reference later on where it says he tried to put an altar in every corner that he could in Israel. The high places, you remember what that is. Those are literally the high hills, the high mountains. That way they thought they were closer to God. 
What did it mean when he sacrificed his children right there and he gave his children over to the molded images of Baal? We've talked about this before, what they would do. They would have these statues with the arms out like this, with the fingers up. And they would heat this statue to a fire red. And then what they would do is take their child alive and put that on the statue's arms. And the child would literally be burned to death. And as they were doing this, they would take drums and pound them as loud as they can. So therefore, they would not hear the screams of the child. The reason they did this is they're basically saying, false God, you are so important to me, I'm willing to let go of my child for you. And this is what he encouraged people to do. This is why when we read moral decline, unfaithful, worshiping other gods, this is what he wants to do. Now let's just stop here for a second. If you're God up in heaven, and you're looking down now in the kingdom of Judah, and you see this king that is leading the nation literally away from you in worship, leading it to false gods. His heart is completely unfaithful to you. He's leading them in moral decline. What would your response be to that? Look at God's response, verse 5. Therefore the Lord God, Lord his God, delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who defeated him with a great slaughter. Now, that sounds like judgment, and that is judgment. But you know what really that is? That's a discipline. That's a little bit of a spiritual spanking for the king of Judah. And we read that passage, and we think, oh my, that's actually love right there. Because this king Ahaz does not deserve to live from any type of biblical standard. And from God's standards of morality, he does not deserve to live. He deserves punishment and death. But the Lord says, I love him enough to discipline him. Remember the passage in Hebrews 12. He who God chastens, God loves. If you're disciplined by the Lord, that's actually God's way of saying, I love you. Now, we don't think of that from that perspective, do we? We don't think of that in any way whatsoever. When we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we try to hide from it. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is one of the most loving things that God can ever do to you. is to give you that still, small voice that says, James, I love you, but what you're doing is wrong. This king was given an opportunity right here. An opportunity to start leading the nation in the right manner. And he chose to reject it. He could have asked for God's help. He could have. And how do we know he could have asked for God's help? Because the Bible teaches us that. Keep your hand here in Second Chronicles 28. Go to the book of Isaiah real quick. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7 specifically. Isaiah chapter 7 gives us a little bit of a background. We're starting to get to some of these kings now that have contemporaries of the major prophets and minor prophets. Ahaz was a king during the time of Isaiah. Isaiah 7. As you're going to Isaiah 7, I want to read something to you out of the book of Micah. Because Micah also was a prophet during the time of Ahaz. And we need to see what Micah thought of these people. This is what Micah said about the kingdom of Ahaz. It says right here, The faithful man has perished. From the earth, there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great men utter such evil desire, so they scheme together. That's what Micah thought was going on during the kingdom of Ahaz. Just the nation was evil. But what does God do in the midst of this evil? Isaiah 7, verse 1. 
Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romulah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. That's what we just read about. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. House of David would be the kingdom of Judah. Ephraim would be the kingdom of Israel. David was from the tribe there. Ephraim was Israel's largest tribe. That's why it's also called Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. If you don't know what that means, that means they were shaken in their boots. They were scared. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jezub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Romulus. Don't be afraid of them. They're smoking firebrands. You know what that means? They're a stick that's smoldering. There's no flame, there's no fire, they can't hurt you. It's a little smoldering piece of grass, a little smoldering stick, Ahaz. You have nothing to worry about. Verse 5, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Romula have plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it. Let's make a gap in the wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. Prophecy right there, verse 8, what Isaiah is saying, in 65 years, these nations aren't even going to exist. As you don't need to worry about them. Verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, that's its capital. And the head of Samaria is Romulan's son, that's the king. If you will not believe, surely you've not been established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Stop real quick, verse 11. Imagine you're in fear. You're shaking in your boots. The world is falling apart around you. And God comes to you in the form of a prophet and says, Ask a sign. What would you ask for? I remember when I first got saved. I'd only been saved for just a couple months. And I remember one time laying in bed and I was looking up at the moon and I was just praying about something. I was just completely overwhelmed and I prayed for a sign. I said, Lord, can't you do something like make the moon turn red or disappear or something? And I just sat there staring at the moon. Nothing ever happened. Soon after that, I read the passage that Paul wrote where it says the Gentiles seek after a sign. God says, you don't need to seek after signs, James. You've just got me. You've got the Holy Spirit. You can trust me. How many times have we said, Lord, just give me a sign to know that you're there? Well, you know what? Look outside. There's grass, there's trees, there's birds. That's a sign that he's there. So for God to come to Ahaz and say in verse 11, ask for a sign. You have my permission. Ask for a sign. Something happened with one of the boys earlier this week, and it was very sad. It was very troubling. And they were really worked up. And I said, buddy, ask for whatever you want. You'll probably get it at this moment. So you get to ask for a sign. What's Ahaz's response? Verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, before you think verse 12 is really super spiritual, it's not. If you look at the context of it, verse 13, then he said, Here now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but now you'll weary my God also? So basically what Isaiah is saying is, listen, you're really starting to bug me. What do you think you're doing to God? Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. God says, fine, I'll choose the sign for you. His response is basically saying, I'm not going to ask for a sign. Why in verse 12? Because that would make Ahaz what? Responsible. So he asks for something amazing. Lord, make the moon flip around and turn red. So the moon does. Now Ahaz says, I know it's true. He doesn't 
want the accountability. Now, we've had a lot of points here so far. Let's start to make some points to really apply to our lives. Number one, guess what? We're living right now in a kingdom like Ahaz, right? Moral decline, unfaithfulness. Is this not where we're living right now? The Lord is saying, I want to move. I want to work. I want to do something in your life. I want to do something in your neighbor's lives. I want to do something where you live and where you... I want to move. Now, the question comes up is, do we want him to move? See, a lot of times I see believers that are totally excited about Jesus until they actually have to go do something about it. Ahaz is shaking. Ahaz is scared. He has an opportunity for God to say, what do you want? And Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask because that would make him responsible. What do you want to do? That's what I was thinking about this lesson today. I hear this. I see this. What am I going to do with this information? I see moral decline. I see unfaithfulness. I see false worship. What am I going to do with that information? Because I can just go to bed tonight just like always and get up tomorrow just like always. And I can just repeat and repeat and repeat. But you know what? Isn't there something stirring in your heart that you want it to be different? That just, I, I want more, Lord. I want something to be different. I don't want my kids to be like all the other kids. I don't want my marriage to be like all the other marriages. I don't want my church attendance to be like everybody else. I, I really want to know you personally and deeply and be moved by you. And I guess that's what the Lord is really laying on my heart as I look at this is, you know, James, what do you want? And I guess I really want the Lord to move and work in our lives. Now the question comes up, how are we going to respond to this? Ahaz said, I don't want that responsibility. What does he actually do? Jump back, if you will, to Second Chronicles 28. Well, Ahaz runs into trouble. Syria and Israel are trying to take him out. So what does he do? Verse, Jump ahead, if you will, please. Verse 16, chapter 28. At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. He says, I need a friend. So he asked for the kings of Assyria to help him. Verse 20. Also, Tiglath, Persiar, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasuries from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders. And he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Second Kings goes into more detail about this. Ahaz went to the temple, stripped it, took away the silver, took away the gold. That was his payment to Assyria. So he now goes to the king of Assyria and says, help me. Help me. Protect me from Israel. Protect me from Syria. This gets a little confusing. Assyria was, got paid off. Syria was attacking them. Assyria takes the money and run. Ahaz is now left with absolutely Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He has literally stripped the temple of everything to buy supposed protection from the world. My goodness, have you not seen people do that? They give up all their riches with God to go out and buy vomit. That's what they do. They give up everything they have with the Lord to go jump in the world for a little bit. It's the prodigal son, and they end up in the swine That's exactly what Ahaz does. Okay, now, put yourself in the position of God. You've already disciplined him and rebuked him. In the book of Isaiah, you've already given him an opportunity. What would you do now? Well, guess what God does? God just decides to step in. And it's kind of a little bit of a long point here. But what happens in verse 9 is they're taking all the slaves back now. They capture all these people from Judah. And so now they're taking them back to Israel, the northern tribes. 
And guess what happens? This prophet, Oded, comes out of nowhere. And he says in verse 9, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry at Judah, he has delivered them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves? But are you also now guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me, therefore, and return the captives, whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. This prophet shows up and says, Guys, what are you doing? These are our brothers and sisters. Don't do this. Don't bring them back captive. What happens next? Verse 12. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah, and the different names mentioned there, stood up against those who came from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. Not only did the prophet, but now the leaders stood up and said, We can't do this. What would happen if the same thing would happen today? In a midst of moral decline, unfaithfulness, false worship, what would happen if the spiritual leadership would stand up and say, guys, this is wrong. All these things you read, it's just wrong. It reminds me of the verse in Isaiah. Woe to him who calls what is right wrong and what is wrong right. That's exactly what's happening today. So what would happen if the spiritual leadership would stand up and say no? But not only that, but what would happen if just the regular people would stand up and say no? We can't do this. This isn't right. What happens next? Verse 14. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders of all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name rose up, took the captives, and from the spoil, look what they did. Clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them, gave them sandals, gave them food and drink, and anointed them. And let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and they returned to Samaria. Is that not an amazing example of what revival could look like? Moral unfaithfulness, moral decline, the world falling apart... The church stands up and says no. The people stand up and say no. And we don't pick up stones to stone people. What do we do? We love them. You love them. Verse 15. You take them and they're feeble. They're naked. They're without food and drink. You anoint them. You clothe them. You give them a ride on the donkey. And where do you take them? Ah, Take them to the palm trees. Right here, right now. Isn't that the whole picture of Christ? Is that we find those that are hurting and falling apart and we say, we want to point you in the right direction and we want to take you to where you're going to be clothed and fed and taken care of and really represent Jesus to you. But what has happened so often in the church is we're so busy letting our lives and our calendars and everything control us. The whole idea of just promoting Jesus, pointing people towards Christ, we've lost that. So often we're promoting ourselves or promoting a church or promoting a ministry. Oh, it's never about promoting a ministry or a church or a person. It's about promoting Jesus. We just talked about that on Sunday. What made John the Baptist so amazing? He just pointed people towards Christ. Just pointed people towards Christ. I heard a great teaching on John the Baptist. And I just heard it this morning. And I wish I would have heard it Saturday so that way I could have stole the points and used it Sunday. But now I'm just going to force it into the message to make me sound good. He was talking about John. And he was talking about how people came to him and said, remember, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? And John kept saying, no, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And the guy made a point, and I never thought about this before. He says, do you ever realize what John could have said? John could have said, oh, you're impressed with Jesus, the miraculous birth. 
I kind of have a miraculous birth myself, too. Remember that? John could have said, oh, you're impressed with Jesus. Prophecies fulfilled, huh? Hey, go check out Malachi. I got a few prophecies about me as well. He didn't. He didn't do any of that. He just said, I want to point people towards Christ. And I think we need to get back to that as as just the body of Christ in general. That it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not about these four walls. It's about Christ. And what are we supposed to do? Find the naked. Find the distressed. Clothe them. Love them. And send them to the palm trees of Jesus. And see what happens. And that's exactly what you see Israel doing. Heathen Israel was actually doing it. They were picking up the pieces here for Judah. Now, we'll move on with a couple other points. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything here before we move on? Alrighty. Okay, let's see what we got going on then. So Ahaz has rejected God's help. Ahaz tries to buy help from Assyria. He literally strips the temple to go out and buy help from the world. Oh, man, it just keeps getting worse. Verse 17, the Edomites are now attacking him. The Philistines are also attacking him. Why? Because verse 19, the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. You will see this throughout the Bible. If there's somebody that God is trying to get their attention, sometimes he will allow just storm after storm after storm to get their attention. I remember years ago there was a gal going through a very, very difficult time, and it just seemed like she was getting hit left and right, left and right. She called me up out of the blue, lost her job. She got caught with something she shouldn't have at work, and she called me up, and she was just distraught. They said they were going to fire her, so she called me and said, Would you please, please pray that I do not lose this job? And I remember at that time praying, saying, Lord, can't you just take the storm away? Can't, I mean, she's been through enough. And it was one of those times where you really feel like you hear the Lord speaking, and I felt like the Lord said, No, I'm doing this to get her attention. She's got to go through this. And I look at Ahaz here, and I'm thinking, okay, you got Syria attacking you. you got Israel attacking you. Now you got the Edomites attacking you. Now you got the Philistines attacking you. Why? Because he was not giving God the full glory. He was not giving everything over to the Lord. And what was he doing? Verse 22. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. See, distress does not necessarily mean go deeper with the Lord. Distress can sometimes make a distance with the Lord. It really does one of two things. If you go through difficult times, it either makes you stop and you think and you come to know the Lord and you go deeper with Him, or that distress can drive you further from the Lord. That's not God driving you further from the Lord. It's your own heart responding that way. And how do we know his heart got further? Because of verse 23, which we already read. He said what? Hey, guess these kings defeated me. Their God is more powerful than my God. So I'm going to start worshiping their God. And not only worship their God, go with me to 2 Kings real quick. Not only worshiping their God, you got to check this out. 2 Kings 16. 2 Kings is, is very similar to the book of Chronicles, but it also covers the history of Israel. But 2 Kings sometimes adds a few details that Chronicles doesn't. Sometimes Chronicles adds a few details that Kings doesn't. You've got to see this point here in 2 Kings 16. Look at what Ahaz did. So Ahaz has been defeated... He's been defeated by Damascus, which is Syria. What does he do in verse 10? Now King Ahaz, 2 Kings 16, went to Damascus to meet Tiglath, Pesiar, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah, the priest, built an altar according to all that King Ahaz has sent from Damascus. So Urijah, the priest, made it before King Ahaz, came back from Damascus. 
And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burnt his burnt offerings and grain offerings, and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then the king Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Urijah the priest. Now, there's a lot in there. What are we seeing? Ahaz saw this altar that this false god had. He says, I like that. Hey, priest. Make me a copy of that. So he makes a copy of it. But what does he do? Then he goes and takes the bronze altar from the actual temple and now includes it in it. See, what does he do? He copies the world and then he adds a little bit of God to it to make it look okay. Do you not realize that's what the church does all the time? We copy the world, but we add a little bit of God to it to make it look okay. Probably about 20 years ago, I was invited to go over to a study at Bowling Green. And a friend came and got me and said, you really need to see this study. We really think the Lord's moving and working. I went over there, and it was, it was a great study. The guy was really a great teacher. It was really reaching the kids, and it was really neat to see what the Lord was doing. Got a chance to talk to him at the end. And he was just kind of talking about the vision of what he thought the study was going to go to. And they said the next step in the vision of this was that they're going to start playing secular music uh, for worship. And what they were going to do is play the secular music to hope that the kids would hear the secular music walking across the campus and then come to the study. And then the study was going to be about why that song was wrong. And that was his vision for it. I heard that. And I just thought, that, that's this. Let's copy the altar. But we'll throw a little bit of God in it to make it look okay. And how often do we see Christians doing that? We look like the world, we talk like the world, we act like the world, we, we watch and listen to the same things the world does, and then we wonder why the world does not see any difference in us. We have copied the altar, but thrown a little bit of God into it to make it look better and okay. And that's exactly what Ahaz did. See, it's okay, I'm using the bronze altar of the Lord. It's okay, we're still offering sacrifices to the Lord. Do you remember what happened when King Saul was told to kill all and he didn't. So what happened was uh, Samuel showed up and heard the blaying and beating of sheep. And so he says to him, what's that sound I hear? And he says, oh, we just kept the best sheep, so therefore we could sacrifice them to the Lord. And if you remember correctly, Samuel said, God does not want burnt offerings, Saul. He wants your heart. He wants obedience. It's not about copying the world. It's about being obedient to the Lord. And what do we see here with Ahaz? We see a guy that was not doing what was right. Moral decline. Unfaithfulness. Setting up false worship. In times of distress, getting farther from the Lord instead of closer. But even in the midst of this, there's numerous chances again and again and again for God to say, I want to give you a chance, Ahaz. I want to give you a chance. But what does Ahaz do? Look at the end of verse 23. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. 
Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. As we say almost every week as we're going through Chronicles, Paul tells us we can either learn from the good or we can learn from the bad. These people are given to us as an example. When you study out the life of Ahaz, you see the moral decline, you see the unfaithfulness, you see the copying the world, adding a little bit of God to it. You see the fakeness of it. But you also see God in his grace and mercy trying to reach him and also trying to protect him. This message really hit me tonight because I looked at this and I thought, boy, this is us. This is us. What are we going to do with this information? There has to come a time and a place in our hearts where we say, you know what? I no longer want to just be the same, Lord. I just want to keep going deeper in you. There's a whole another level of just walking with you. And I'm not talking some legalistic have to. Lord, I just want to give everything over to you. Where I really realize it's not about me. It's not about me. I had a selfish thought earlier this week. And it came up to about free time. It's been really busy. Busy with school finishing up and kids and church, etc. And I had this little brief moment of me, of what about my free time? And I really felt like the Lord laid on my heart, James, you're a bond servant. I don't know if the bond servant gets to ask the slave owner for a day off. Now, there's a Sabbath's rest. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But I realized... That all of a sudden, this craziness, the Lord is allowing this to come in. And, I, and I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to sound ultra-spiritual here, because trust me, there was a really low moment there. I stopped and I realized, wow, Lord, thank you. If you're bringing all this into my life, you're saying it's an opportunity to minister. It's an opportunity to love. And all of a sudden, what happened was this. I was sitting at my desk, looking at my to-do list. And I realized, what was my to-do list? It was my to-do list. And the Lord said, here's your to-do list today. Just do it. Love the people that show up. Minister to those people that are popping in. Go out there and call them. Do the people I've laid on your heart. Yeah, but Lord, I got all these things I need to do. No, I got you. And then I all of a sudden realize it's not about me. It's not about my time. And then now it's just like, wow, Lord, when those supposed interruptions happen, Lord, in your divine wisdom has brought that into my life. That's great. When those kids come in, well, Lord, that was your divine wisdom and guidance there. Chuck Smith said one time in a message I remember, and I've never forgot it. He says he gets up every morning, and he plans to be uh, distracted. He gets up every morning, and he plans to be interrupted. So therefore, when he's distracted and interrupted, it doesn't bother him anymore because he's already planned for it. There's a lot of truth to that. If every morning I get up and I say, Lord, I bet there's going to be somebody that at an inopportune time needs something. I'm already prepared for it. Lord, I bet there's going to be a time where the kids pop in and they need something, and I was really focused on something else. I'm already ready for it. If I'm already interrupted or planning to be interrupted and distracted, then it doesn't bother me as much because I'm a bond servant. Lord, if that's what you brought into my life today, amen. How can I love them? How can I minister to them? Because I am yours. I'm yours. What do we see in Ahaz? We see a guy that's constantly battling to be in control, constantly doing what he wants to do. God says it doesn't work that way. Took him downhill. Thankfully, next week when we get into Hezekiah, we got four chapters of a good king. We can really learn from Hezekiah's life. But before we get ready for communion, has anybody got any final quick questions, comments here about anything here with Ahaz before we close up? Part of the reason why I want to finish with communion is on a message like this, it's really easy to focus on everything that's wrong. And what I really want us to do is just take an honest-to-goodness stop and look at our lives and say, Lord, what do you want from us? 
Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want us to have a good search into our heart to say, Lord, what is it? What are you looking for? Because I want to be that person you've called me to be. Paul talks about this too when getting ready for communion. It says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood and the body of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's a time of self-examination before we do communion where we stop and say, What is it, Lord? What do you want me to be? And what do I need to confess to you? What do I need to go over to him? And, and I encourage you during this time here, this is where you stop and you say, Lord, I am really yours. I'm giving it all to you. Because what we are about to partake here is a representation of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And, and as we get ready to partake of the juice, it's a picture of the blood, the only currency accepted in heaven. As we take a picture of this bread, it's a picture of the body that took the beating for us. If Christ made that sacrifice for us, how can we live for him now? This is the system that God set up. He came, he walked on this earth for 33 years, paid the ultimate sacrifice, then went up to heaven and said, Hey, the way I want to reach the world is through you. It's through you. And when you really stop and you think about that, wow, my sole purpose in life is to proclaim Jesus Christ to a dying world and give God the glory. How simple is that? Let's not let the distractions of the world get to us. Or as the parable of the sower and the seed says, the weeds come and choke us out. I'm willing to bet for some people here tonight, there's a lot of weeds into your life right now that are trying to choke you out. No. Your sole purpose, proclaim Jesus Christ and give God the glory. And when that gets that clear, wow, Lord, that's what I'm here to do. I'm not here to get kids to the age of 18. I'm here to promote Jesus in them so they have a walk with Him. I'm not here just to get along with my coworkers. I'm here to proclaim Christ in them when God opens a door. I'm not here just to make money to pay off a house. I'm here to live in this neighborhood, in this community, and be a light and a witness to everybody that's around me. All of a sudden, eternity makes sense. So let's pray for that. Lord, as we get ready to partake of this, help us to see that. And not only see it, but then to live it. Lord, your word says that we're supposed to examine ourselves at this moment. You're supposed to search us and try us and see what sin is in there. We come to you with an open heart. Lord, open every door, every door in the temple of us, Lord, and and get everything that's in there out so that we may truly just love you with a full, clear conscience. Get in the back cobwebs, Lord. Get in those closets we don't even want to look at. Get all the junk out. We confess it to you. We examine. We want to be the husbands and wives you've called us to be. We want to be the moms and dads you've called us to be. We want to be the friends and co-workers you've called us to be. And whatever sphere of influence we have, we want to represent Jesus in all we do and say. Keep our heart on eternity, Lord. And we come to you now quietly as individuals to examine ourselves and to confess to you. And I encourage you, go to the Lord right now and give those things over to Him. Lord, I just pray that we could die to those things that are bringing us down. I think of what Paul said where he says he's crucified daily for you. Lord, help us every day when we get up to say we don't want to live for us, we want to live for you. And the beautiful thing about that, Lord, is your plan for us is perfect, it's beautiful, it's good, it's joy. 
That's exciting, Lord. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. The worship team and guys that are helping with communion want to come forward.